Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Today we begin a new conversation. Three parts to this conversation, a sermon series called The Games. As a focal point for our start today, I want to encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. It is the text that you just read on your screen, but I want, I want you to be able to follow along with it as we live into this text and others like it the next two weeks. Hear these words from the Apostle Paul. Do you not know that in a race the runners all compete, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win it. Let's pray together. God, your people who gather in your name this moment ask that you would teach us something today about the race that we all run. We pray that you would see us seeking you, that you would remove the distractions that may be in us and around us that may prevent us from finding you. And as we gather around your sacred word, show us something that is so powerful and transformational that it actually changes the course for our race. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord of life. Amen. So, Olympic fever has struck. Am I right? And I have come down with it. We love the Olympics in our family. We do. Uh, we, Friday night we had a party. Had some friends over. Watched the Olympic opening ceremonies. We watched some contests yesterday. And it really doesn't matter, in my opinion, what event you're talking about, whether you're, you're talking about gymnastics or swimming or track and field or my favorite women's beach volleyball, whatever the event happens to be, it doesn't really matter because there's something powerful and maybe at times even a little transcendent about watching the world's greatest athletes in, in their prime compete to be the best to stand on a platform and hold flowers and wear gold and have the national anthem of their home played as they make proud their families and villages and cities and countries, right? There's something powerful about that. Do you know who else was a fan of the Olympics? The Apostle Paul. 
in, now I'm talking Paul, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, right? Most of what we have in our hand here. In some of his teachings, his, his scriptures, his writings, the Pauline letters can be saturated, dripping wet with Olympic imagery. We believe that Paul and some of the other apostles may have attended the Olympic games of his time and other games that were popular and similar to the Olympic games. And I think it's worthy of our time for these next three weeks as the attention of the world is in Rio for us to pay attention to what might be an opportunity to learn something about the character of our Christian faith by listening to what Paul had to say about it through the imagery of the games. You know, it was the, the renowned theologian Karl Barth, right, who, who said, if you're going to do theology right, well, if you're going to have theological discourse that has any credibility whatsoever, here's how you have to do theology, with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. Anything that we say about God cannot be detached from the real world. It must be grounded in real human experiences. And, you know, that's what we've been doing for the last 17 weeks too, isn't it? If, if, if you've been here and uh, been part of our parables series, that's exactly what we've been trying to do because if you're paying attention even a little bit to the national scene, there is no shortage of voices that are attempting to define for us what it means to be alive, what it means to be human, what it means to be American, what it means to be a neighbor to one another. And so withholding the newspaper in one hand, so to speak, over the last 17 weeks, I have attempted for the church, the body here, to hold in our other hand the Bible and listen to the words of Jesus that supersede every word in every other direction. You with me? So that's what we've been up to for a long time. The Bible in one hand, the newspaper in the other, and I think it may be worth our time to walk alongside this running image, this running metaphor of the games. But before we do... We have to know a little something about the background of why is it that the games, I'm making the argument, found its way into the New Testament writings. I'm really indebted to Adam Hamilton, a pastor and writer I really admire, who did some incredible background work in the connection between the history of the Olympics and Pauline New Testament literature. And so maybe what you already know is that the ancient Olympic games began in 776 B.C. Now, um, most everybody in this room was not there at the time. <laughs> Long time ago. And that very first Olympic competition was one race. It was one 200-meter race. That's all it was. The best and fastest from all the city-states in the region came out every four years to race a 200-meter dash. Eventually, different um, events got added to the list. Soon thereafter, there was a, a discus throw, a, a javelin. Uh, there was wrestling and boxing soon thereafter. And in a couple of weeks, on part number three of this dialogue, this conversation, this, this sermon series, we're going to be talking about the very interesting list of events that have been in the Olympics throughout the ages, and some of which were taken away for some good reasons. And we're going to use that as an opportunity to talk about the unique race that you are called to run. 
But for now, suffice it to say that in and around Greece, it was a big deal. It was a big deal for a long time. But you probably already knew that. You probably already knew that the ancient Greece, the ancient Greek games ended in 394. See, the emperor had become a Christian earlier in the third century, Constantine. And there was an influence there that eventually made those in leadership say, you know, if the Olympic Games had originally been dedicated to Zeus, it's inappropriate for Christians to participate. So they put the nicks on it, right? They, they put the kibosh on it. They stopped the Olympic Games. At least that's what they said. The truth is, a true historical account of, of why the Olympic Games ended was because, in the words of Adam Hamilton, the ratings had gone down. No kidding. So the Greek world had now become the Greco-Roman world, and let's just face it, the Romans had some other forms of entertainment, if you know what I mean. The gladiators and the arena. And so there were other uh, forms of entertainment that drew crowds, and the Olympics themselves had a hard time keeping up. And so, interesting what happens sometimes when you use religion to push your own agenda. And Constantine did it just like anybody else. But you probably already knew that. What you might not have known is that in the ancient Greek games, there was another set of games too. They were called the Isthmian Games. The Isthmian Games. And the Isthmian Games took place on an isthmus. You see what they did there? The isthmus. Yeah. On the isthmus that connected the Peloponnese in the west to the rest of Europe. And 60 miles east of Olympia, near a little town called Corinth. And the Isthmian Games had some of the same events as the Olympic Games, but they happened in the, in the consecutive seasons. So every other year or so, there would be the Olympics every four years, but the year before and the year after the Olympics, the Isthmian Games. Same deal, same events, same crowds. Well, this is a big deal to us because Corinth was a place where the Apostle Paul planted a church. We know this. We just read from one of his letters to that church at Corinth, the first Corinthians. And he stayed there after planting the church for 18 months, which means that Paul absolutely would have had the opportunity to see the Isthmian Games in action and maybe even the Olympic Games, which is just powerful for me as I think about what we read and what is behind what we read and what was it that shaped and influenced what we read. Because I imagine Paul standing on a roped line with others in the crowd watching a foot race take place. I can see him uh, shoulder to shoulder uh, uh, crammed in with the crowd watching a boxing match and, and being swept up into the frenzy, the, the energy and the emotion of watching the very best at what they do in their prime compete to be the best, right? There's something powerful about that. I thought about that yesterday. I thought about it yesterday, and I want to make sure I get her name right to give her all due respect. I thought about that when I was watching the Hungarian swimmer, uh, Katinka Hosu. Did you watch her race? My, my, my. So she raced twice yesterday. The first was a qualifying race. It was the 400 individual medley, right? And this girl is bad, fast bad. 
In the afternoon, she won the race mightily, but she almost broke the world record. She didn't quite break it, but she almost did. That night, she came back and blew the record away, beat the world record by like two whole seconds, which is a long time in swimming. But what I was moved by was the crowd. And I was moved by one particular fan, her husband. Did you watch him? Take a look at her afternoon race. This is her husband. Look at him on the side. Run fast, look fast. You can feel every fiber in him wanting her to win this thing, and he's swept up into it. Just watch his energy. Watch. He's had more than a few cups of coffee that morning. And she's going to win, and she does win, but oh, it's not the world record. But listen to the commentators. Listen. Listen. The commentators, if you didn't hear it, said, if you think that was animated, wait for tonight. And tonight came, and she blew the world record away in the dust, and, and this was her husband on the sideline. Yeah! He sees it coming. He knows it's about to happen. Absolute sheer delight and giddiness and joy, and there it is. Woo! Yeah, absolute joy. And he looks down and finds her, and... And she looks up in victory and says, yeah, baby, look at me. Look at what I did. And I'm intrigued by the emotion of the sidelines. That guy's done a couple of push-ups too, by the way. <laughs> yeah, just, just saying, you know. But I'm intrigued because I, I fully imagine the possibility. Now, I don't know if the apostle Paul would be on the side saying, you're doing this. But I, I absolutely can't imagine him in the throng of energy watching this display and saying, whoa, did you see that? That was incredible. But you know, when we watch from the sideline, we have a, a unique perspective. It's not the same as being on the field, though, you know. When we're watching from the sideline, and I will tell you the same thing I told you about a year ago, my favorite moment in the Olympics that I've watched so far has to do with a malfunction, has to do with something going wrong, because I think that's kind of how faith works. We grow best when something goes wrong, and it was in the Beijing Olympics. Do you remember the moment when Michael Phelps was attempting to win his, like, you know, 99th gold medal or whatever it is now? And there's a malfunction in his goggles. Do you remember this? And none of us knew it while it was happening. We just knew that he was just beating everyone. But we would later learn that there was a malfunction and water had seeped in and he was having to finish the race blind. Having to, to, to not see and yet finish. And take a look at the last few seconds of that extraordinary race. None of us knew at the time that there was a malfunction. Not even now when he says, take this piece of junk back to Walmart where you got it. He's, he's like, oh my God. And he's just squinting. He's in pain. He's, he's kind of frustrated. And we all just thought he was disappointed, but he's hurting. He's hurting. And the apostle Paul maybe sees something like that and says, man, did you see that? There were many racers in the race. 
There are lots of those who race, but only one, that one, won the prize because that was bad. And he says, in such a way, you should run the faith race. In the same way, you should pursue with the same passion and drive and focus and love and, and determination to not quit. You should pursue Christ because there is a prize to be won. There is a prize to be won. And sometimes I think maybe when we gather in this place, I don't know if today maybe the only message that you need to hear is, is, is there are days when the race does not go your way. Somebody here may need to know that despite whatever has fallen apart in your life, whatever has malfunctioned and you're taking on water, and there, there are these moments when every force outside of you will try to compel you to quit. There will be plenty of valid reasons to get out of the pool. And the apostle Paul says, don't. Quit, for there are many who race, but there is only one who wins the prize. Run your race in order to win it, to win it. Maybe somebody here needs to hear this today, that your race is not over. Your race is not over. There is one at the end drawing you Godward, hoping, praying, wanting you to take one step forward at a time, one stroke at a time, because there's a prize worth winning. That's what Paul says. Paul says that the journey of faith is a race with a prize worth winning. But can we talk about what that prize is for just a minute? What is the prize? I mean, is it just heaven? I mean, is that simple? I don't think so. I think it's more than just heaven, because that prize has already been won, right? There's a prize And if we're not careful, we can interpret Paul here to say, hey, compete. Compete with each other. We can interpret Paul, and if we're not careful, we can think that he's saying we have to compete with each other. That somehow that there is this this limited gold medal of grace that God has at the end, and and you better get there first because you want to win it and not lose it. Beloved, that's not how grace works. There's enough grace in God for everybody. For everybody, there's nothing that you can do in your race that will land you any more grace than you already have. God is crazy about you right now. And there's nothing you can do about it. So what is the prize that Paul is talking about when he says, race, go, fight, swim, run, don't quit? What is the prize that he's talking about? The thing is, I think we all know what the prize is. I think it's the same prize that Jesus was talking about in his parables when he said, oh, it's like, a, like a, a pearl of great price and a merchant finds it and sells everything that he has in order to attain it. Or maybe it's like a treasure hidden in a field and when the landowner finds it, when the, the person finds it, he, he buries it back and buys the land so that he may attain it. It's this treasure that's hidden in clay jars that despite The fragility of the jar itself, there's something eternal and beautiful and powerful, and it's available right now. The prize is knowing Christ 
and being known by him. That is the prize that we are running for, that we are racing. That's what all the sweat and the pulled muscles and the torn ligaments are all about. That's why we run and we don't quit. And when we go through seasons that are difficult, when it's, when it's so difficult that we want to give up, that's why we don't give up because in the not giving up, Something happens in us that changes forever. We get to know Christ in a way that we would never get to know Christ if we had not gone through the thing. Knowing Christ and being known by Christ is the prize. To have an intimate relationship with the one who knows you best and loves you the most and for that intimate relationship through all of the malfunctions and all the hurdles and all the, the obstacles that may come your way, for that relationship to grow so sweet and so strong through every season that you wake up in the morning and even if you're hurting, even if you're in, in doubt, even if you're unaware of what the next move is in your family, your life, your job, your career, there's something steadying about you. There's something unflappable about you because regardless of what you face on monday tuesday wednesday or whatever day of the week you have recognized thus far in the race that you've already made that knowing christ is the only thing that is eternal and is the only thing that matters because knowing him means that you can can be unflappable in anything you face this week unmoved steady and the Apostle Paul said it this way in Philippians when he put it quite like this. Beloved, I, I, I don't consider that I have made it on my own. But this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize. Well, what prize? The prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus Beloved, there is a prize to this race that we are running, and the prize is knowing Christ and Christ knowing you and having the call of God become clearer and clearer with each morning that, that comes, right? And next week, we're going to talk very candidly about this verse and others like it as we attempt to understand what is it that we do in seasons when we are straining when we have to forget something and leave it behind. Next week, we're going to talk about what it, what it looks like to press on through hard work, through rigorous spiritual preparation so that we might be able to develop the spiritual muscle fibers <laughs> that give us the muscle tissue spiritually to put one foot in front of the next. We're going to talk about all that next week, but here's the thing. We can't talk about that now. We, we can't talk about how do you stay in the race and how do you run hard, how do you train hard, how do you find your unique event to run in this race until we settle one foundational truth. And it's the only one I want you to remember today. You ready? You can't win the prize until you get in the game. There is a prize to be won in this game, and it, and it is knowing Christ. But you can't win that prize unless you get in the game, and we have to make a decision. You have to make a decision somewhere along the path of your journey. Are you going to watch this faith thing happen in the lives of other people? Are you going to watch from the arena, from the sidelines, or are you going to get in the game 
even if it means you fall flat on your face. Can I tell you what it looks like to move from the stands to the game? Now, it's a baseball metaphor. It's not Olympics, if you're okay with that. A friend of mine named Matt Cook just recently was the moderator of the CBF, and in Greensboro at our General Assembly, he told the story of this fascinating guy, the most interesting and luckiest guy on the planet. He's the biggest sports fan you could ever imagine. His name is Lionel um, Rodia, lives in Philadelphia. Lionel Rodia. He lost his job in 2008. Lionel lost his job like thousands of others in that year. And during his spare time, he poured himself into learning about sports, about all the players and all the teams. And he loved, loved Philadelphia sports teams. Didn't matter which ones. The Phillies, the Sixers, right, the Eagles. It doesn't matter. He would go to every game he could possibly go to. And, and the truth is, he usually got into the games by begging, borrowing, and stealing tickets to get in. But he went to everything he possibly could because he Lionel is somebody who doesn't like to watch life from the sidelines, but who likes to be right in the middle of it. His best friend, Tush Millison, was interviewed one time, and Tush said, yeah, Lionel, man, he loves to be in the middle of everything. He can't stand to watch things from the distance. In fact, I've never been to a Springsteen concert where he didn't say to me, uh, hey, follow me, and we didn't end up on the front row. That's just how Lionel is. Well, in... 2008, you might know that the Phillies won the World Series. They were in the World Series, and, and I, I was rooting for the Rays, but the Rays didn't, they didn't, they didn't make it. It was two games up, and they were about to win. And he got a ticket. Lionel did. A free ticket to an out, outfield bad seat in the left, left outfield uh, section behind a, a foul pole. Couldn't see anything so far away from the players. But that didn't stop Lionel, so he began to do what some people do, which you make your way to the better seats, and when they're empty, you just sit in it. Well, he made his way through inning after inning until he ultimately arrived in the, the cool, swanky diamond club section right behind home plate. And there he is. He's making his way into home plate, and lo and behold, it starts to rain. I mean, the pours down, the bottom falls out, and it's a torrential downpour. And so what do you do at a baseball game when it rains out? They hand out rain checks, and so he gets a ticket. <laughs> and he comes back the next day. And his friend Tush, who has season tickets to the, the swanky diamond club section, is sitting there in his seat, and his phone rings, and he answers his phone, and it's Lionel. And Lionel, Lionel says, look to your right. And he looks to his right, and there's, there's Lionel. No kidding, two rows back, dead center behind home plate. The game continues, and as you may know, the Phillies win. They, they, they won that game, and then pandemonium breaks out. Of course, there's, there's frenzy in the stadium, all kinds of celebration and energy. Well, in the middle of it all, Lionel sees these guys in suits walking by. In a, in a hurry. So he thinks, well, they must be important, so I'll go with them. <laughs> he walks right behind them and follows them down into the dugout. Now, he's, he's about five foot eight, 260-something pounds. 
He doesn't look like the other baseball players. Let's just put it that way. And he's in the dugout, and he's standing next to Bud Selig, the commissioner of baseball. And he's in arm's distance of that gorgeous world championship trophy. About that time, a bat boy begins to throw out championship t-shirts, world champion t-shirts to the players. So he gets one. (laughs) And he puts it on. He sees a short Hawaiian woman handing out lays. And, And because he had spare time ahead of time, he knew that that was the mother of Shane Victorino, the the, the outfielder for the Phillies, one of the outfielders for the Phillies. So he says, hey, Mrs. Victorino. And she goes up to him and kisses him on the mouth and puts a lay around his neck. The phone rings again. Tush is sitting in his seat from the sidelines and it's Lionel. And, and Lionel says, look on the mound. And he looks out there, and the team's out there, all these, these world championship athletes, and there's, there's Lionel with a victory sign, <laughs> you know? About that time, the, the all-star uh, second baseman, Chase Utley, says to the all-star shortstop, James Rollins, uh, and, and Lionel's there hearing it, and the second baseman to the shortstop says, um, hey, man, let's go celebrate. And so what does Lionel do? He says, I'm with you guys. And he goes to the clubhouse. He makes his way. This is unemployed, short, no ticket Lionel in the clubhouse where there are, there are, there are uh, uh, buckets of beer and wine and, and all kinds of uh, and ice and everything. And so he chugs a beer and picks up the, 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 the champagne, and as one article says, he goes, lotto champagne crazy, shooting um, multi-million dollar athletes up the nose and over the head with champagne. There's a, there's a picture of him right there. He was actually on TV. They, they caught a picture of him. That's actually Lionel. He pours a whole bottle over slugger Ryan Howard. Another batter comes and headbutts him in the frenzy and the celebration. And then he goes up to Jamie Meyer. Jamie Meyer, the pitcher who just won the thing, he goes up to Jamie and says, man, thank you for everything. And the pitcher said, no, man, thank you. (laughs) What? Phone rings again. Tush answers the phone. And it's another one of Tush's friends from home watching the game from his house. And his friend says, hey, I think I just saw Lionel on TV in the clubhouse. Is that, is that possible? <laughs> yeah. And beloved, I say to you, the thing that you may think is impossible is possible. You can be in the heart of the celebration. No ticket, <laughs> no job, but a way has been made for you to be in the clubhouse of grace And you can celebrate, but you can't win the prize unless you get in the game. And maybe today is the day that you get in the game. And I don't even know what that means for you. It may mean that today for the first time you confess to to this church and to the world that, hey, Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life. I've never said that out loud, but I want to yield to him. I want him to forgive me of my sins, and I want to follow in his way for the rest of my life. If you've never done that, man, get in the game. Come do it. 
and we'll worship and we'll pray and we'll celebrate the thing that God's doing in you. But it may be that you are walking with Christ and you've been walking with Christ for a long time, but maybe it's been a long time. You know what I mean? It's been a long time since you've ever felt like you really were in the game and you want to come forward and talk to one of our pastors and say, I don't, I don't know what it's going to require, but I'm in. I'm in. Because I, I, I don't want to watch from behind a foul pole in left field. I want to be in the clubhouse of grace. <laughs> Show me how to get there. Whatever the decision may be today, today is the day to make it.